Is tomosynthesis superior to digital mammography? Comparing statins in people with diabetes. What's the safety of GLP-1 receptor agonists? And people with COVID infection, do they do worse if they also have the flu or other viruses? That's what we're talking about this week on Double T Health Watch, your weekly look at the medical headlines from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso. I'm Elizabeth Tracy, a Baltimore-based medical journalist. And I'm Rick Lang, president of Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso, where I'm also the dean of the Paul L. Foster School of Medicine. And you're going first, sir. Gosh, this idea of co-infection with influenza and COVID, something that everyone has worried about for quite a while. Well, is it, if it's not bad enough, we're worried about COVID infection. We also have the typical viral infections that occur primarily throughout the winter, things like influenza, adenovirus, which causes the common cold, and respiratory syncytial virus, which primarily affects kids, but can affect older adults as well. And as you're aware, when we did really well with protective measures, that is social distancing and wearing masks, we not only prevented COVID infections, but we're about 99% effective in preventing these other viral infections. Now that those protective measures are being relaxed, we're seeing individuals become infected with COVID and also co-infected with others' respiratory viruses as well. So the question is, does that affect the clinical outcome of these patients? The authors of this particular study looked at co-infection in over 212,000 adults that were COVID-infected. Now, not all of them had co-infection. Only about 8.4% actually were co-infected. And they were scattered again, about a third, a third, a third of those that had adenovirus or influenza and RSV in addition to COVID infection. And they followed their outcome. Did the co-infection affect their incidence of going on mechanical ventilation? And secondly, did it change their in-hospital mortality? So these are all hospitalized patients with COVID infection. Those that were co-infected with flu were four times more likely to end up on a ventilator. Those that were affected with either adenovirus or the flu had a 50 to 240% increased risk of having in-hospital mortality. So it does appear that co-infection does affect outcome. And that means we need to rethink the whole protective measures and whether we should be relaxing them as much as we are. We should be testing hospitalized patients to see if they're co-infected because that may change their therapy. First, let's mention that this is in the Lancet. It's a correspondence. What about the vaccination status of these folks? against both things, against COVID and against influenza, which admittedly this year was an extremely poor match. Well, unfortunately, the data in this particular study doesn't inform us about the effect of influenza or COVID vaccines on these particular individuals. It's important to be vaccinated with both. Yeah, this co-infection thing, of course, is really concerning because as you've already identified, there was such little flu transmission last year when people were distancing and wearing masks, and now we're seeing an uptick. Right. We're fortunate because the time where these particularly hit are in the autumn and fall. It's also worth mentioning that for right now, keeping the mask on in public places and kind of staying away from big groups of people and all the rest of that stuff, we know that that really helped with regard to infectious disease. Right. Washing your hands, keeping your hands away from your face. And as the FDA recently recommended, considering a second booster dose for those individuals over the age of 50, and particularly those with comorbidities. All right. 
Let's turn to JAMA Network Open. This is something that I've followed with great interest since the development of tomosynthesis or 3D breast imaging. And this study takes a look at the cumulative probability of a false positive result in 10 years of screening with digital breast tomosynthesis versus digital mammography. They have a very large data set here. 903,000 plus women, almost 3 million non-baseline screening examinations. There was interpretation by just shy of 700 radiologists. The number that were actually tomosynthesis was only 15% of all of those screening mammograms. 46% were performed in women with dense breasts, which we know already is a risk factor for not identifying cancers or precancerous lesions because of the difficulty in imaging. What they found was with tomosynthesis, the false positive test result was just shy of 50% for tomosynthesis and 56% for digital mammography. The recall rate also modestly lower with tomosynthesis. That biopsy rate or recommendation for biopsy also was lower. They admit a couple things. In some of these women, they did every other year screening versus annual screening, and the numbers were better for the women who had it every other year. But of course, that's because there were far fewer of these exams. And then it was also helpful to have non-dense breasts and if you were older. These were two different imaging techniques performed over a 10-year duration. And that false positive meant they either got recalled to have another study done, or they were asked to have a different study, or they had a biopsy. And although statistically there was a difference, clinically it was a very modest difference. The cumulative probability of at least one false positive recommendation was really generally similar for both tomosynthesis and digital mammography. And that it was about one in nine women were predicted to receive a benign biopsy after 10 years of annual screening, regardless of the modality. Digital mammography is more available than tomosynthesis in many places, and it performed very well. As you said, doing biannual screening had less false positives, but in large populations of women, the benefits of annual and biannual screening are very similar. There are ways other than changing the imaging modality to decrease false positive rates. That is, go to biannual screening when you can, or limit tomosynthesis for the women that are most likely to benefit from it, those that are with very dense breast tissue. Other studies have established that tomosynthesis is better at identifying those early tumors. So therefore, it should probably be employed, especially if you're going to only do it every two years. It depends upon availability of the equipment and also the expertise in reading this. It is important, though, whether you have annual or biannual screening, is to get it done. You want to detect breast cancer in its earliest stages when it's most treatable. Well, we'll agree on that. And I think we're going to talk about this some more. And I would just say that as a person who has a vested interest <laughs> in these imaging modalities, I might be just slightly more sensitive to the nuance. Let's turn to your next one. That's taking a look at, gosh, what's the best statin? And that's in the BMJ. Our listeners should be aware that statins are really the basis of both primary and secondary prevention of cardiovascular disease in people that are at risk, i.e. diabetics. Specifically, it lowers cholesterol. We talk primarily about LDL cholesterol. But the studies show that what's called non-HDL cholesterol is probably a better measure in diabetics. So let me take a step back for just a second. 
we say, let's take all of the cholesterol and just take the good one out, the HDL. Everything that's left, we're going to call non-HDL cholesterol. So what this study attempted to do was do a comparative study looking at all the randomized control styles we currently have that looked at different types and intensities of statin in diabetics and reported non-HDL cholesterol to see which was the best statin. These are mostly type 2 diabetics. What they discovered is that if you're just looking at non-HDL cholesterol measurements, resuvastatin, given at moderate high-intensity doses, and simvastatin and atorvastatin, given at high-intensity doses, were the most effective treatments. And if they really just concentrated on those that were high risk for major cardiovascular events, atorvastatin at high-intensity doses had the largest reduction. I'm really more concerned about outcomes. Which of these is better at preventing cardiovascular events? Unfortunately, this particular study doesn't reveal that. Some statins are tolerated better than others. All diabetics should be at moderate high doses, should be taking the medication that reduces your non-HDL cholesterol by at least 40%, and it's tolerated without side effects. Let's talk about the generics available for each of these and the relative cost of each of these also. Yeah. So generics are available for all of these. So there's really not any significant cost difference. I guess I would ask you to speculate on the biological mechanism that would explain the differences regarding the ability of these meds to reduce non-HDL cholesterol. They all act on the same enzyme. There are different absorptions, different dose intensities, and then some people just genetically respond a little bit differently. Would you say then that if somebody is not achieving the result they're looking for on one, that they ought to just feel really confident about going ahead and trying another one? Usually what we'll do is we'll go to a higher dose. If that's not effective, we can switch to a different statin. And again, if that's not effective, we have other medications we can use in addition to a statin. Finally, let's turn to JAMA Internal Medicine, and this is a look at glucagon-like peptide 1 receptor agonists. I'm just going to call them GLP-1 agonists from now on, and whether their use increases the risk of gallbladder and biliary diseases. This is a meta-analysis that's taking a look at a whole lot, of course, of studies for two indications when people are taking GLP-1 agonists, and those are type 2 diabetes and weight loss. This weight loss indication is more recent. Their primary outcome was this composite of gallbladder or biliary disease, and secondary outcomes were biliary diseases, biliary cancer, cholecystectomy, cholecystitis, and cholelithiasis. They had 103,000 plus patients represented in this meta-analysis. And the upshot was, yes, indeed, the use of these GLP-1 agonists was associated with an increased risk of these particular diseases, especially when it was used at higher doses for longer durations and for weight loss. It was a 37% relative risk increase in all comers. While that seems like, oh gosh, maybe we ought to be worried about that, the editorial list is kind of goes back and forth about the real ramifications. When you talk about a relative risk, it sounds like it's really big, like 37% increase. When you look at the absolute risk, it's really relatively small. For every 10,000 persons treated each year, an additional 27 cases would have gallbladder disease. So the absolute numbers are relatively small. For a medication that can be effective in both treating diabetes and more important in preventing cardiovascular disease, here's where the study fails. Although there is biologic plausibility, we know that GLP-1 
one receptor agonist delay gallbladder emptying. It also inhibits gallbladder motility. So there's plausibility about why there might be gallbladder disease in stones. We know that just losing weight increases your risk of causing stones. So whether this is due primarily to GLP-1 or due to the fact that we're losing weight or the combination of the both, this study really can't dissect those. Also, the editorialist notes that it may be possible to overcome this modest increase in risk by slowly titrating these meds, particularly when someone is using them for weight loss. I'm skeptical of that. The major side effects associated with this are nausea and vomiting. We can certainly mitigate those by slow titration, but I'm not sure that sneaking up on the body by slowly titrating GLP-1 is actually going to fool the gallbladder in the end. Most of these effects took place not in the first six months, but years after the medication was started. I don't think we're going to fool the gallbladder here. I love that. On that note, then, that's a look at this week's medical headlines from Tech is Tech. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang. Y'all listen up and make healthy choices.